Yahweh, one true God, gathered together as your people today, and people gathered here before you and with one another bring all sorts of things here today, fears, sins, failures, joys, celebrations. Some of us are just fresh out of slavery, looking back and afraid that that we're going to fall back into it. Some of us are standing at the sea with no idea where to go next. Some of us maybe are walking through the sea, experiencing your deliverance in powerful ways right now. Some of us are looking back over what you have done, destroying our enemies and giving us victory. Many of us, maybe most of us, are a little bit of all of those things. And so we ask that you would open your word to us now as as we consider uh, this monumental event in the, the history of your people, a people of which we are a part. So give us insight and Speak to us now, in Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Grace and mercy and peace be yours from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. So as we've been talking about, today we're beginning our Battles of the Bible series here at Connect. Um, So over the next four weeks, we're going to be looking at four key battles in the Old Testament, where God saves his people in astonishing ways. And there's really no better place to start than with the prototypical battle of the Bible, the battle at the Red Sea. Now, this is a pretty familiar story, and to Christians and to non-Christians alike. Um, It's been portrayed in movies, it's been kind of satirized sometimes, and it's been uh, something that's kind of been before us uh, in many ways for a long time how God parted the waters of the Red Sea and allowed his people to walk through on dry ground. It's a very familiar event, but maybe you've never really thought of it before as a battle. After all, Israel doesn't fight here with with swords or with spears. Actually, Israel doesn't fight at all. The battle at the Red Sea is definitely not a conventional battle. Then again, none of the battles we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks are conventional battles. In each one, God steps in and fights for his people. And so what God does here at the Red Sea will become kind of this defining event in the Old Testament. And in fact, aside from creation, God's deliverance of his people at the Red Sea becomes the most mentioned event of all throughout the Psalms and the prophets, it becomes the event in which God's people find their identity, the place they always go back to, to be reminded of who their God is and what he has done for them and what that makes them. So let's get into it. From Exodus chapter 14. And again, as I read this, uh, so that you're not thrown off, whenever we see Uh, The phrase, the Lord, and we have kind of an error on the first one there, but whenever Lord is in all caps, uh, the Hebrew name for God, Yahweh, is what's in the Hebrew text, so I'll, I'll probably be sharing that today. Then Yahweh said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi Haharath, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea, for Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh. And they did so. 
So God has just led Israel out of slavery in Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, raining down plagues on the Egyptians and freeing Israel from bondage. So what's next? Well, something really quite puzzling, actually. Instead of leading his people on a direct route to the promised land, which would have made the most sense to us, instead, God commands his people to camp right by the sea. He brings Israel right up to this huge body of water with no conceivable way to cross it. It kind of reminds me of uh, when you would play that, that classic computer game, Oregon Trail. Not Oregon Trail, um, Oregon Trail. And you would get to a river, and you usually had kind of two options. You could, you could try to ford the river, or you could cock the wagon and float it across. And no matter what you chose, inevitably you would lose at least a wagon wheel. Sometimes you'd, you'd lose like a member of your traveling party or something like that. Well, even those two less than desirable options are not available to Israel here. They are stuck. And what's worse, if an opposing army were to come after them, foreshadowing, they would be trapped like the allies at the Battle of Dunkirk, boxed in with their backs against the water. One book I was reading on this subject uh, tried to argue that Moses knew exactly what he was doing here militarily, and he kind of used the, the topography of the theater of war to Israel's advantage. Well, just the opposite was the case, actually, and, and Exodus explicitly tells us this. God tells Moses that he is intentionally leading Israel into this hopeless situation because he is picking a fight with Pharaoh and his army. Have you ever felt like God has allowed you to be in or has even led you straight into a situation where your back was against the wall? Martin Franzman, uh, the guy who wrote Thy Strong Word, which we sang a couple weeks ago, and and other just incredible hymns, uh, says it this way. With seemingly cruel deliberation, God at times leads all his children into situations so hopelessly desperate that they might learn anew that he is the Lord, the only helper when other helpers fail and comforts flee. Man's darkest hours are God's opportunities to reveal his unfailing power to save. When the need is greatest, God is always nearest. Maybe you can think of a time where you've seen that to be true in your own life. Or maybe it can give you a helpful perspective on something that you're dealing with right now. Well, here's what Israel was dealing with. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And Yahweh hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them. All Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army. And he overtook them and camped at the sea by Pihaharath, in front of Baal Zephon. So Pharaoh takes the bait, and he goes all in, like a guy with pocket aces who doesn't realize that his opponent already has a royal flush. 
Blinded by his fury, he embarks on this revenge mission by putting all of the resources at his disposal toward recapturing and re-enslaving the Israelites or maybe even annihilating them. He takes 600 chosen chariots, which would kind of amount to the, the special forces of Egypt's army at the time, along with all the other chariots of Egypt. Pharaoh was out to utterly devastate Israel, and he had the means to do it. He knew it, and Israel knew it. This world has always been impressed with horses and chariots in whatever form they may come. You see, but God has not. He delights in those who fear him, those who place their hope in his steadfast love. So let's see what Israel does. Exodus 14 continues. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to Yahweh. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Now it's kind of easy for us to roll our eyes at the Israelites here, but consider for a moment that that they had been enslaved for 430 years. They didn't know anything else. And as soon as they're starting to, the pain of their past comes back to get them. And their first inclination is simply to embrace it to willingly go back into slavery because they don't see any alternative. Like we said earlier today, we are not so different. Like we confess together, we forgiven sinners also have a tendency to want to return to our slavery to sin as a dog returns to its vomit, as one proverb so colorfully puts it. Keep in mind also that Egypt's army was the most fearsome in the world at the time, and it was dead set on brutally enslaving them again. I'm guessing you know what it's like to have an overwhelming force coming after you, whether it's financial challenges, the hurt from a broken relationship, or, or this habitual sin or addiction that you just can't seem to shake. It can be hard to see through the eyes of faith at such times. As Israel saw Pharaoh and his army bearing down on them, they saw only two alternatives, slavery or death. But then Moses invites them to see something else. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of Yahweh, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. Yahweh will fight for you. You have only to be silent. Wow. Now notice that Moses doesn't deny what Israel is seeing. The Egyptians, their chariots, their their fierce and bloodthirsty warriors. But he says, yeah, that's what you see today. But you will never See them again. Instead, see the salvation of Yahweh. Now, I don't know what's been pursuing you. I I don't know what sin or guilt has been plaguing you. I don't know what you brought before the Lord today in our time of confession or 
maybe what you still kind of hold on to even after that, but I can assure you that today, God has taken it away. does not need to plague you anymore. Today, I invite you to see the salvation of Yahweh. Because the promise that Moses gave to Israel has been repeated time and again since, and it is a promise for you. Yahweh will fight for you. And you have only to be silent. You don't have to do anything or say anything. God invites you to shut your mouth and open your eyes. God says, don't just do something. Stand there. Last week was Reformation Sunday, and we we heard the words of Psalm 46, including its most famous verse that says, Be what? Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted on the earth. So be still. Be silent. Acknowledge that, that the weight of sin that stands against you is something you cannot overcome by your own reason or strength. And then watch as God's strength conquers for you. Here's how it happened for Israel. Yahweh said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts his chariots, and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and Yahweh drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. It's kind of interesting, isn't it, how God tells his people to be silent, to be still, and then at the same time tells them to go forward. And notice, this is before Moses has stretched out his hand and parted the waters. How were the people supposed to go forward? Where were they supposed to go? Maybe God's teaching us that Faith sometimes means going forward when there is no forward, at least not one that we can see. Because if God commands us to go forward when we can't see a way to do it, that means that he is in the process of making a way. And so here, God splits the waters and Israel goes forward. Their backs had been against the wall, but God clears the way for them to walk between the walls of water. On dry land. Of course, God has always been the one who subjugates the power of the waters. At creation, God had separated the waters from the heavens and from the dry land. In Revelation 21, in John's beautiful description of the new heavens and the new earth that we are waiting for, 
Now, there is no more chaotic sea that we have to worry about because God has done away with it. In our gospel reading for today, we were reminded of how Jesus, true God and true man, has power over the winds and the sea. Water always does. 